When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Spoke Media not sorry productions. There are two kinds of people in the world. People who keep their old love letters and people who don't. I'm a keeper. I have every postcard, ticket stub, and little note that I've cherished in a bunch of old shoeboxes. But most fastidiously, I keep old love letters. In fact, I've kept a photo of me reading the first love letter I ever got. It was from a boy named Danny, and he wrote it to me in the card for my 12th birthday present. It was 1994, and I had a roller skating party. It was awesome. In the photo, I am chewing on my finger and smiling, realizing that he is telling me that he likes me. Cute, right? I have looked for this love letter in my many boxes of memorabilia. I can't find it. For a while, that really bothered me. Now, I suspect that having the photo of the moment is more precious than the letter itself would be, but I still wish I had the actual love letter. Not so that I could reread it. I don't really care what the card said. I want the proof that at 12, a boy, a cool boy, liked me. That even though I had curly, frizzy hair that my sixth grade math teacher teased me about, and people always told me how cute I'd be if I just lost five pounds, A boy liked me. The photo needs a story, and you'd have to take my word for it, what's actually going on. The letter would prove it to you, and to me. Old love letters prove that we are lovable, but they also are sad, right? Evidence of lost loves, of mistakes we've made, of people who have hurt us, or people who we have hurt. On this week's episode, we talk about the theme of reunited lovers, of old love letters that come to life. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Hot and Bothered. Reunited Lovers is about the one who got away, the one we just can't stop thinking about, even though we should the one whose love letters we keep in a shoebox in the closet. I love this trope. Some of my favorite romance novels are reunited lovers' novels. Two people love each other very much, and something comes between them. War, a misunderstanding, awful parents, a huge fight. So they break up. But then something changes. 
The war ends and they find each other again. And although they are different people now, there is still something essential, undamaged by war. Or the awful parents, you know, die. The trope reunited lovers is the most hopeful end to an old letter. You've kept something, carried it with you, move after move, and then like magic, it goes from a sad, stale thing to evidence that you were meant to be together all along. I honestly can't imagine anything more romantic than something tearing two people apart and them crawling their way back to each other. Our writer for this trope is Sejal. She's a lawyer who's been married to her beautiful husband for nearly 20 years and has two gorgeous kids. Who are your characters? What is keeping them apart? What gets them back together? I want to hear it all. All right, here we go. Her name is Misha Tahani. She's 25 years old, and she's a public defender in Boston. And when she was 25, she met this Boston police detective whose name is Gabrielle Messi. And they're dating on the sly because she's a public defender. He's a police officer. That's like super forbidden. I mean, not forbidden, but you kind of can't do that. Never expecting that they're going to have a case against each other, but then they do. And it's a murder trial, and her client ends up being found guilty. And she is pissed because she thinks that her client was wrongfully convicted, and she blames Gabriel for doing this to her, and she ends the relationship. And he's heartbroken, and she's like, I'm never talking to you again. So then um, 20 years pass, and she's now 45, and he's 50. And these are, you know, people my age. Um, She's left Boston about a year after the trial, so when she was 26. And she, when she turns 35, she leaves the law permanently and becomes a professional dancer. And he rises in the ranks in Boston at the police department. So she's coming back to Boston for a dance performance, and he learns that she's going to be there. And in the intervening years, he felt so bad about his mistake that he looked back into the case and realized that they did make a mistake, and he helped the defender's office exonerate her client. Uh, And so he wants to apologize and see if he could make amends, but not knowing a lot about what's been going on with her life. Um, So that's where, that's kind of where I'm headed. So are they gonna, aren't they gonna? I'm a dancer too, and I've always dreamed of actually quitting my job and being a professional dancer. So this is a little alternate reality fun for me too. Part of what is so interesting about Reunited Lovers is the years that the two people spent apart from one another, like Misha and Gabrielle, who are apart for 20 years. Even if they aren't busy being obsessed with each other, there are flashes of them remembering each other. There are smells, sights, songs that, in the years apart, made them think of one another. They've seen someone from afar and thought, is that? And then have been either relieved or devastated to realize, no, it isn't. In Sejal's story, we see this form of haunting, the way that our past creeps into our present and we can't seem to shake it off. It's not just love letters gathering dust in a box. It's the way our memories keep someone alive. Sejal, in her romance novel, has mysterious text messages. Once a month, on the fourth of the month, Gabrielle, whose mistakes with Misha weigh on him all these years later, gets an anonymous text message hinting that he is missed. 
And even though he hasn't spoken to Misha in over 20 years, whenever he gets this text, he thinks of her. We all have these things where something, you, you eat something. This is Proust, right? Mm-hmm. You eat your Madeline, Madeline and you're suddenly taken back to a memory. So whatever it is, maybe it's a ding dong. Maybe it was a romantic burrito. I don't know. But there's some food or a song, some super cheesy, you know, Kokomo by the Beach Boys, something that just puts you in either an uncomfortable or romantic or nostalgic spot with respect to somebody. I hate that song, Kokomo, by the way. I hate it. So I can use a different example, but there is some song like that. So that to me, this idea that there's a text message and that someone is really trying to convey something to you and you want to try to forget it. Haven't you ever had that experience? I had this problem with phone numbers. A person that you used to maybe once be in touch with and you're not anymore, but you still remember their phone number. And every now and then I'll check in my best friend growing up, 827-7230. That was her phone number. I haven't dialed that number in 30 years, but I will never forget the number. And sometimes I'll be like, is it there still? And I'll test it and there it is. It's still there. So that's kind of what I like. I like the play with the text messages. There feels an urgency, immediacy about it that would me would be relatable to someone who's looking for themselves in the book. And they can say, wow, what if I thought of this person? I asked Sejal to expand more on this because this text thing, I'm not sure I found it romantic. Like, isn't another word for this harassment? Don't reunited lovers each on their own in their brains wonder, is the other thinking about me? And that's also what I liked about starting it that way, that yes, they both are very much in different ways, but all these years have passed and you've not forgotten about this person. There's something immortal about it too that I really love, aspirationally. God, how satisfying to imagine the ways in which all of the people we think about are thinking about us. Ultimate narcissism. Okay, interesting. I was thinking about all of the good bits of reunited lovers, the forgiveness, the pining, the faith being restored. I've always focused on the reunion part of reunited lovers because that's the romantic part. But what Sejal is wrestling with is the being haunted. She's obsessed with the impact of the time apart. She's thinking about the ways that our minds play tricks on us, about the phone numbers that would still ring if we dialed them, but somebody else would pick up now. Gabrielle and Misha will end up back together, but they'll never get those 20 years back. And Sejal wants to talk about those 20 years. She's thinking about a kind of longing for how things could have been, but can't be now. Sejal loves her life. She has that beautiful husband and those two gorgeous kids. But also there's an alternate life out there that she could be living. And there's always grief for the lives we don't get to live, even if there isn't regret. So is there somebody in your life who you would want to get a text message like that from? Why do you ask such hard questions, Vanessa? Don't we all have somebody in our life? But is there someone particular in mind? Sure. Okay. You don't want to talk about who that is? Sure, I can say. I had, um, it was relationship turned best friendship for many, 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 many years. And then as it happens, this person moves into another relationship with the person who he then married. That wife was not cool with our friendship, even though our friendship had been over, I don't know, 15 years, really long period of time. And then we just completely fell out of touch. And it was very clear to me that he couldn't 
be in touch with me. It would cause problems in the relationship. And I still think very highly of him. I don't think it wasn't um, anything acrimonious, but when someone is that close to you for so long, and then it's been now, oh my gosh, it's been all 18 years that I have we have not heard, I've not heard boo. And there's not much to know, but someday if I ever did hear from him, it would be like such a joy just to hear how he's doing. So yeah, him. And then there's other people, actually not romantic, but um, friends. Once upon a time, you were really good friends with them. For whatever reason, you are not in touch. And then you just wonder, or maybe just I wonder. I actually think maybe there's a whole universe of people who really just don't care. They move on. But I am hopelessly nostalgic. That's probably also why I picked the trope that I did. Mm -hmm. I keep things, remember? I'm a keeper. So I get the idea of this. I really do. But, and maybe this is about my lack of maturity, but something about what Sajal is saying here doesn't quite sit right with me. I don't think that I want reunited lovers to be about nostalgia or haunting. I want it to be about forgiveness and hot reunion sex. But maybe there's a reason that I don't find this text or haunting idea romantic. There is someone who I think about not Danny, who wrote me my first love letter. We'll call him Jay. I loved him. I never understand why people say, I thought I loved. Sure, now I realize that I shouldn't have loved. He was unworthy of my love. But I had the feeling of love. And then he betrayed me. He is the one who haunts me, the one who I think I see around corners. If today I got a mysterious text from an untraceable phone, I would immediately assume it was from him. And I would feel stalked. And the reason for that is simple, right? I haven't forgiven him. I am still mad at him, and I don't want to hear from him. I did love him once, and it would be dishonest of me to forget that. But I'm not going to keep the door open to a future with him, not even as friends. I think different people hit you in different ways. And I think some are more forgettable, others aren't. It's an interesting exercise to think about how do we create and recreate our own memories? So, you know, my daughters are getting to an age now where they can see yearbooks and things from my high school. And I made the deliberate decision. I had one high school, um, it was a middle school, seventh grade. I wrote a mean thing about someone. I took the middle school yearbook and I ripped it into shreds and I threw it away. And I just changed my history. When my kids look through my things, they will never find that evidence of me. Now I've told them, but they'll never find the evidence of it. And I recently, I've been keeping actually letters from exes for a long time. And only in the last couple of years, I just decided to chuck them all. Why? I don't want to remember. I don't want to read the letter. I don't want to be there again. I didn't even read them again before I threw them away. I just threw them all away. And it took me a long time to get to that place. For a while, I kind of wanted to curate but then memory is also so inaccurate, right? So if you're thinking about someone in a particular way, are we really also remembering, is it all bad? Is it all good? Is it the mixture? Do we remember a single day of any relationship? I remember flashpoints. And that's psychological theory too, right? Remember what they call like hot moments where something's really infused with emotion. But the mundane, like you know, what did my mom give me for breakfast even one day of high school? Even any year, one day of high school. Do I actually remember her? Where was she standing? What did she give me? Same holds true in a relationship. Did we go on this date? Where did we go? What movie was that? How does that all just go away? Then did it not happen? It's funny, right? I want the evidence on hand. 
but not to think about it. I have the old shoe boxes, but God, I never read the old love letters or notes or look at the ticket stubs. Sejal wants to delete the record, which makes me wonder, why am I keeping these things? Because I agree with Sejal. I think we should be moving on. Like, I love that photo of me reading that first love letter from Danny. I can prove it to you. A boy liked me. But if you found the letter, I'd say, great, throw it in the shoebox. And if you offered to read it to me, I'd be like, no thanks. I want the record, but not to engage with it. I find past love letters helpful just because, at least in the one, like, very serious relationship that I had that ended— the ending ended up being the dominant narrative for so many years. And I do think it's for the best that it ended. But it's also nice to remember that we loved each other. I agree with you. I did. I can't explain my actions. Yeah. It's a funny thing. I just got to this point where I was like, no more. Yeah. I just don't want to know more. I don't want my brain cluttered with it anymore. I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to wonder about it. I want to select my museum. I don't know. I find that interesting in parallel with what I do for a living because I reconstruct facts for a living. And maybe that also has really influenced me in seeing, wow, like when you leave that kind of history, it can come back. And then you can have to relive it minute, frame by frame, minute by minute. And do I want to be able to do that? And for whatever reason, I decided no, but I haven't quite figured out yet why. I mean, there's something so freeing about the idea of it, right? It's... It's, I mean, it's living in the present and saying, I forgive myself for all the bad things I did. And, and I, I will forget. Yeah. I'm allowing myself to forget. I walked out of the studio and couldn't stop thinking about this idea. The thought that I can just trash all of my old shoeboxes. But it felt to me a little bit like Sejal's doctoring evidence. And she's a lawyer. Evidence is how you get to the truth, Right. But God, wouldn't it feel good not to trash the whole shoe boxes, but to go through and cut out certain things from them? Or who am I kidding? I'm not a million years old. At least delete certain emails. I thought about this a lot in the month that Sejal and I were apart. What role does evidence have in our lives? Why do I keep things if I don't like the idea of being haunted? Why do I love reunited lovers as an idea? If there's no lover in my life I want to be reunited with. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So I have a confession for you. Oh, yes. Um, which is, last time we talked, you told us that you threw out a lot of like old memorabilia, old love letters and your books and stuff in your life. Yes. Um, and I, I was like pretty judgmental. I like couldn't believe that you just would like erase chunks of your life. And first of all, before I confess, actually, how are you feeling about that decision? Have you have you thought about it, or is this like, I did it, now it's done? No, I feel great. I'm so glad I did it. So I went home and deleted, I mean, for me, the thing that I got rid of was emails, but there was mm. like one ex in my life who it was like particularly fraught and like, I didn't behave in ways that I was proud of, and it was just sort of like ugliness sitting in my cloud archive. It's not even like I had them filed in a folder. <laughs> and I went through and I deleted and then like re-went through and permanently deleted every email that we ever exchanged and every like wow. text conversation, everything entirely inspired by you. How do you feel? I do feel a little bit like I've messed with the record of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It like feels fine. Yeah. It feels like I've taken away a potential weapon of self-harm. Yes. Right? It's like there was something there that could hurt me. Yes. And I had access to it, and I've trashed it. That's what I loved about it, right? And whether it's something toxic, like you're—and I've had those relationships too. Like, it's just, like, it's yucky, right? Or even something that it was fine, but— I don't know. I, I was saying to someone the other day, I, I get to choose what I'm going to get mad at now. I am not anymore just going to let someone make me mad. I don't see that control to somebody else. They don't get to choose. If I'm going to get mad, I'm going to decide to get mad. And that's that. And the real resistance point is those days, like when I'm having a bad day, I'm Googling people who make me feel bad about myself. I don't know why. I don't do it anymore, but I did for a long time. Why in the world wouldn't I just get up and go to Starbucks or get a cupcake or something? Yes, exactly. Maybe I'll use that shame time that I used to secretly go back and read those emails between me and Jay to pet my dog or rewatch Grey's Anatomy for the ninth time or cure cancer. Nothing productive was ever going to come from reading those emails. I would just do it when I wanted a reason to hate myself. I didn't do it when I wanted a reason to forgive myself, to say, wow, Vanessa, you messed up here, but it's okay because we all make mistakes sometimes. I would think about those emails from Jay like Lady Macbeth's spot of blood on her hand, the awful thing I couldn't get over that I couldn't wash away. You know, there's some people that have been so mean. To, it makes me mad. Like, there's been so mean to me for no reason. And I don't want to care about them. I don't care what they're doing. I don't want to know about them. And it's cool. You didn't like me. I didn't like you. That doesn't make either of us a bad person. It's just the chemistry was off. Fine. But I don't be thinking about it either. So, I don't know. That purge, to me, it feels like taking the cloud of our brain 
and putting down the little monopoly pieces, like we're commanding that real estate in the way that we want to do it. That feels good to me, don't you think? And like, I'd rather write a card to like a friend, send them some chocolate. I have a friend who loves dark, dark chocolate. And I would rather take that time, get her a card and send her this like really rich 80% dark chocolate because it's going to make her so happy than Googling an ex-boyfriend or that mean person who shall remain nameless. <laughs> well, you'll never guess what happened just a few weeks later. I was walking the angel pup, which is what I call my dog, in order to maintain her sense of privacy and anonymity. And I thought I saw Jay's haunted form from around the corner. But it couldn't have been him because he was pushing a child in a stroller, and the quick mental math that I did didn't add up. I, in fact, had to move apartments and call the police because one night he was knocking on my door and windows and wouldn't stop, and that was just two years ago. This child was too old for Jay to have been pursuing me just two years ago. And then the shock came rolling in. It was him. Off to Google with the help of a best friend I went. And with the help of Google Calendar, I found the date of Jay's and my first date. With the help of their Bed Bath & Beyond registry, I found the date of his wedding. My first date with him was three weeks before his wedding. He had been married for two years when he was still knocking on my window. Hopeless nostalgia felt out of reach to say the least. Now my deleting the evidence no longer felt like a profound act of self-care. It felt like I had deleted evidence of my own complicity in a moral crime. If I still had the emails, I could pour over them and see if he had made any signs that he had been married and see all of the things that I had missed. How can I get healthy about this if I don't have all of the facts and I need the evidence for the facts? I want to one day be able to forgive myself for this dumb relationship I was in. But if I don't deal with the harsh realities of it, how will I ever be able to get there? So I did what I always do when I'm at a loss. I made it someone else's problem. When I was deciding whether or not to break up with Jay, because something about it didn't feel right, there was one friend who I would turn to. Lucky me, he's also a professor studying forgiveness and an Episcopal priest, Professor Matt Potts. Matt, do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm Matthew Potts. I am associate professor of religion at Harvard Divinity School, and I'm also a priest at a church on Cape Cod. We asked to talk to you because you are writing a book on forgiveness. And in interviewing our friend Sajel, I have become really interested in the role of forgetting in forgiveness. So here's the problem that I'm having. So Sajel told us that she recently, like, basically redacted all of the evidence of her younger years pre-children in order to, like, curate a version of herself for her children. And I was, like, really intrigued by that. And so I was like, okay, like, I'm going to go through all my old emails and, like, delete all of the emails from that guy, Jay, that you remember when I dated. Mm -hmm. And now I feel, like, weird about it. 
So on the one hand, it feels good because I feel like it's not like I was going back and rereading those, but it does feel like I deleted an instrument of potential self-harm that like on a night where I'm spiraling about all the mistakes I've made in my life and all the times in my life I've been humiliated, I can no longer search my Gmail filter and like find those emails. But it also feels like a lie and he is one of the people in my life who I super haven't forgiven. And, like, he's just still someone who I, like, feel a tremendous amount of shame around. And so I'm wondering if, like, you can help me sort of unpack the role of, like, memory and forgiveness and evidence and self-forgiveness. Okay, so there's there's a lot going on in what you just said. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of begin by drawing some distinctions that I might want to make uh, as in the way you described it. The first is just that, like, there's a difference between forgetting and choosing not actively to remind oneself, right? And so the way you talked about about deleting emails, that seems sort of useful and wise not to put the instruments of self-harm nearby, right? To, to remove those from your immediate vicinity. But that's different from forgetting. It's not that you've forgotten what happened um, or forgotten Jay. It's just that you, you've you decided that active reminding of yourself is a thing which is only serves to hurt yourself. You know, most, I think, would say most philosophers and theologians or whatever would say that proper forgiveness involves some sort of forgetting. Like you have to actually look past some things or ignore some things in order to forgive somebody. But I tend to define forgiveness much more modestly. I tend to think of forgiveness as simple restraint from retributive harm, like just basically choosing not to hurt the people that have hurt us. That doesn't mean not being angry at them. It doesn't mean trusting them. It doesn't mean restoring relationship with them. It just means, you know, you hurt me, I'm not going to hurt you back. And and it seems like in order to do that well, in order to, to forgive in that sense, you have to remember, like you have to remember what happened to you. You have to remember that you were hurt. But the other thing I'd say is that I think in the way we tend to think about forgiveness, it is often blurred with or overlaps too much with reconciliation. And that these two things are actually discrete and very separate acts that have that carry very separate demands and requirements. If I'm going to reconcile with somebody, that is restore full relationship with them, I, I, I need to have trust in them, right? And, and because trust is not an entitlement, that trust needs to be merited and earned by by the person who has harmed me. But forgiveness, if it's separate from reconciliation, if it doesn't require that trust, again, just simply means that I am not going to hurt you back. Not having access to those emails from Jay was probably a good thing for that 72-hour period when I was obsessed with the new level of his betrayal. But the thing that I felt bad about was that what I had also deleted was my own complicity. I had no idea that he was married but I had been with a man while he was married. And now there was no evidence of this horrible thing that I had done, inadvertent though it was. So how do we do all of this, like the, the memory and the forgetting enough in, in order to forgive ourselves? And then and how do we reconcile with ourselves? Yeah, so the case of self-forgiveness is really complicated or at least the the kind of blurry 
overlap between forgiveness and reconciliation is more complicated with self-forgiveness because you're always in relationship to yourself. You can't break healthily, kind of psychically break relationship with yourself the way you can with a friend who constantly causes you harm. But I still think forgiveness remains the same thing with with self-forgiveness. It's just just deciding not to harm yourself, like deciding not to punish yourself for mistakes you have made, right? I think that's different from forgetting. I think wisdom would demand that you remember what mistakes you've made so you don't make them again. The problem with self-forgiveness is the fear that you'll make the same mistake again, right? Is like once you make a mistake like that and you've broken a trust with yourself like that, I mean, and all I did, right, like the, the terrible thing I did was trust someone who didn't deserve my trust. But yeah. I'm like, oh, am I somebody who, like, doesn't actually have a good read on people and is actually really stupid and naive? And am I going to yeah. make that mistake again and just hurt myself again? And and see, this is this is why precisely why I think the distinction between f- forgiveness and forgetting is really important and why forgiveness can't be forgetting. Because to forgive is to actually name name the past as broken. I think forgiveness is actually an act of memory. It's actually saying, I remember this happened. And that should be a reminder or, or a way to keep in mind those things and, and to keep oneself from, from falling into habits that you worry you might fall into or falling into traps you worry you might, you might fall into. Where on the contrary, if you forget entirely, then you wouldn't recognize the traps when they arise and you'd fall in again. Yeah. So the, um, the thing with Jay, right, is that Looking back, it turns out that the whole time we were dating, he was engaged and then married, Mm -hmm. and I did not know. And then I figured it out sort of two years after. Yep. And there was this moment when I figured it out where I was like, do I I find his wife and tell her? Like, where is the morality in that of, like, I didn't want to— cause him more harm because he harmed me and I didn't want to hurt her. And I like know that they have a kid together now. So I'm like, I didn't want to hurt this child. And I also like think she deserves to know. That's a really complicated uh, question. So there's this moral philosopher named Lisa Tessman and she has the, this concept called moral failure, which I think is really useful and maybe especially in a context like this. Which is that we, we tend to think about ethics or we tend to think about morals as, you know, what, what ought I to do in this situation or what am, I, what am I obligated to do in this particular situation? And what she says is that, you know, as we actually encounter the world before us, there are some situations where, where no action we take is actually one which has great moral benefits, which, which results in, in great outcomes, that there are no good options sometimes, that our obligations are our sometimes um, contradict one another. And so we have to, we have to fail. We have to just kind of choose the direction in which we're failing. And so, and so the situation you describe is maybe a, a case in point. Yeah. You can see here in this situation how, on the one hand, you're reflecting morally and saying, I do not want to act out of retributive spite. And I can't suss out the degree to which re- retributive spite is motivating my urge. On the other hand, I also know that were I in her situation, I would want to know. And so is there a moral good in, in telling her? And it, and it seems to me, first, I mean, you're not her, so you don't know what she would want to know, right? So that makes it tricky. Right. Um, but it also seems to me that it, there may be, just because we live in a broken world, there may be no, no 
path forward or avenue or act that you can take where you come out scot-free. And that a better moral accounting would not be to say, which is the right thing where I succeed morally, but which way is the, the manner in which I will fail and be able to live with myself. There are some situations, maybe all situations, where we cannot but make mistakes. And so we have to throw ourselves on the mercy of others to kind of reckon that we are doing our best. We have to figure out the failures we can live with, the failures that that we can build relationships and communities around, because none of us are going to be perfect. I'm not going to tell you whether or not I decided to tell Jay's wife. I'm sure you have opinions on what I should and shouldn't have done. I promise you that I gave it a lot of thought and had a lot of conversations and am at peace with what I did. Here's what Sage will help me realize. What we do with our past is entirely impacted by what we want for our future. Sage will trash those yearbooks because she didn't want those gorgeous kids to see them. She doesn't Google the people who are mean to her and instead uses that time to send her current friend chocolate. She engages with her past in order to be her best self in her future. So a huge part of what I did or didn't do, as far as Jay and his wife is concerned, is because of the man I love now. He and I discussed what he would want, what would make him feel comfortable. And he's the one who matters to me now. Usually I don't really care what men think about my life, but this isn't just my life. This is his and my life. So I did the thing that I could live with and that he could live with the most. Because reunited love isn't just about the past. It's about imagining a future. I used to hold on to everything because I want an honest record. I don't think I will have a future biographer, but I do have a vision of myself at 85. 85-year-old me is going to be awesome. She's going to talk a lot less. She's going to have 12 dogs. She's going to be doing her very best to stay up on pop music, and she'll do things like wear house slippers. And although she'll be very busy taking care of all of her chickens and washing the feet of the homeless, one day she will decide to go through all of these old shoe boxes and email folders. And even though she won't quite remember who this guy Jay was, she is going to have such profound sympathy for 30-year-old Vanessa and will reconcile with her former self wholeheartedly. I used to keep ugly things because I hoped that future me will be able to look back on them and see their beauty. But now I've started to think about curating the ugly things because I have to get from here to awesome 85-year-old me. And I don't think spending a lot of time self-flagellating will get me from here to there. It's a balance. Nostalgia is about cherishing the way that things used to be. I want reunited lovers to be about the future, about the apology, the war ending, the reconciliation, the fact that Gabrielle goes back and gets someone out of jail because of his love of Misha. It's not that the memory of Gabrielle was so great that Misha had to get back to him. It's the fact that he loved her so much that he did something about it. He went back and reinvestigated a case, and an innocent man got out of jail. But as far as Jay, I'm glad I burnt those letters. And by burnt those letters, I mean press delete. I have taken away my future self's chance at completely forgiving me. 
but I've given my today self more of a chance of spending time investing in the relationship in front of me instead of the one behind me. And now it's time for our next assignment from Julia Quinn. Hi, Julia. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm great. Okay, so, so far you have had people do these like sort of pre-writing writing assignments where they're getting to know their characters. Yes. Now we are in our third assignment. What should people be doing? They're going to actually have to start writing. No. Which I'm really sorry, but the only way to write a book is to actually write a book. And if there was any other way to do it, I would have figured it out by now. And so I think since it's such a short piece, there isn't a lot of room. And so I think that the first scene of the novella is going to have to be where the two protagonists either meet or re-meet, because you could be doing something where you have people who have known each other in a, in a different capacity, in a different way. But I think you need, in such a short piece, to just get right into it. So knowing that there are a million good ways to do this, and knowing that people are looking for just assignments for a way to do it, what are some recommendations that you would make for just this version of an assignment? What is one way for people who've never done this before to practice? I think some things to keep in mind are how are the characters perceiving each other? Mm-hmm. Is there some kind of misunderstanding? And it doesn't have to be like the big misunderstanding, but are they perceiving each other in an incorrect manner? Another thing to re- think about is in whose point of view are you? Because mm-hmm. you can't be hopping back and forth the whole time. Now, you can write it in a way where you switch But your first meet may be through the eyes of just one character. And you do need to think about, okay, whose point of view do I want that to be in? And then also think about the next scene, whatever you're going to do next, okay, whose point of view should that be in? So, Julie, I think that this is a great first, like, writing assignment in the capital F first, right? Like, they are actually going to be sitting and writing. And you said writing is about a butt in a chair. And I am asking this question on behalf of people with standards because I am someone with low standards. So I have very low anxiety about bad writing. But other people— I've heard about them, have standards. And so for anybody who's like, oh, my God, now I'm writing and now I have to write my first sentence, what advice do you have? Like, what makes for a great first sentence? I'm going to avoid that question specifically, at least right away. And instead, I'm going to invoke the queen, and her name is Nora Roberts. Yep. And she once said, I can fix a bad page. I can't fix a blank page. And you have to remember that, that it does not have to be perfect the first time you get it down. Now, a lot of people seem to feel like maybe your first line has to because that sets the tone. But if you don't have it in you right then, if if, if that's not there, go on to paragraph two. To me, the only thing a first line needs to do is make me want to read the second line. That's true. Um, I do have one book, To Catch an Heiress, which came from 
the first line. I thought of the first line, and then I basically wrote a book to follow it. And it was, um, Caroline Trent hadn't meant to shoot Percival Pruitt, but she had, and now he was dead. So it sounds like from what, from your example, it's like if you have no other idea for how to start, give us who, what, where, right? Give us Poppy Bridgerton lived in this place and a fact about them. Yeah, I I think that's a good analysis. I think the best first lines do that. And again, I'm the first one to say not all my first lines are the best first lines. Sometimes your story just doesn't have, you know, the first line that's going to go down in history as best first lines ever. I don't pay attention to first lines of books. So I would just encourage people to go and write. And if that first line thing is holding you up, write the second line. So that's your third assignment. Go and write your second line and write your meet cute. And we can't wait to read what you have written. Julie, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you in two weeks. Sure. And don't forget to write your first line too. Yes. (laughs) Before we go, I thought we should call my favorite biographer. Um, Hi, mom. Hi, mommy. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So I have a question for you. Yes. Do you remember my 12th birthday party, which was at um, Skateland? Yes. It was a really good party. Do you remember there's a photo of me reading this like very sweet note that Danny wrote me? Yes. Do you know that photo? Yes. Why did you take that photo? Because I took pictures of everything you did. But you didn't take a picture of me opening every present and of me reading every note that everybody wrote me. No, I didn't. I tried to be selective. And as I remember, this note was a little bit special to you. I think he was telling me that he liked me. He was. As I remember, you and and Danny had a very nice, friendly relationship, more than just friendship. It was a level, a step or two above. So I have that great photo, but I don't have the note. And I'm wondering, do you think that there's a good thing in holding on to like old love letters? Do you have, you were engaged before dad. Do you have any of the letters he wrote to you? No, I don't. And um, I'll tell you, there is some things, if you think in later times, that will spark some joy in you or happiness, then yes, I think it's worth holding on to. The problem is that at the time, we don't realize it. Do you wish that you had the love letters that your old fiance wrote to you? I've never thought about it. And no, I don't think I miss it. Um, It was a closed chapter and I did much better with your father. So no. Burn, ex-fiance. Take that. (laughs) Well, no, it's obviously an ex for a reason. And it was great at the time, just like that letter that you read from Danny was, was great at the time. But the person becomes meaningless to you, to me, actually. Yeah. So the letters would mean nothing to me. Why hold on to them? The only reason I would hold on to any letter is if I respected the person now. 
because now those letters would become totally irrelevant to me. I don't care what he said or what he felt, or it felt probably felt good at the time, but today would be meaningless. So like your friend Wendy had a high school sweetheart, and then she married someone else, and that marriage fell apart, and now she's back together like 40 years later with her high school sweetheart. Like, you never know. Maybe you and your ex-fiance will get together after dad dies. I still think it's different. I still think that what you did when you were young or 40 years earlier, you were at a different place mentally, emotionally, whatever. And if you reconnect, it should be for new reasons and not nostalgia. Well, also, I hope dad doesn't die for a while, so. Um, He's not planning on it, so. Okay. Okay. Thanks for letting us torture you. I love you, mommy. Love you too. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. This has been Hot and Bothered. Send us your own love advice question at hotandbotheredrompod.com for me or my mom to answer on Patreon. Which, by the way, you should sign up for. Besides answering love advice questions, we are also offering romance reviews and stickers that are really cute. If you want to read Sajel's story, you can go to our website, hotandbotheredrompod.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Rompod. Our romance teacher, as always, is Julia Quinn. We are a co-production of Not Sorry Productions and Spoke Media, executive produced and written by me, Vanessa Zoltan, and Ariana Nettleman. Our production team is Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, Chelsea Erson, Janielle Kastner, Caroline Hamilton, Jenna Hannum, Will Short, and Alexander Mark. Special thanks this week to Matt Potts, my present and my future, Peter Mueller, and my mom. Thanks, Mom. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com